This is something that I think a lot of people disagree with, but it's it's so true in all my clients, especially in the business world, that have kind of changed their mentality, have loved this. Here's what it is. You should pursue things that bring you energy. That's it. Some people say you should never pursue money, but guess what? When I was broke, pursuing money brought me energy. It woke me up early. It kept me up late at night. Then I got to a point where I, money didn't do it for me. And then it became helping other people achieve success. And my definition of success is inner peace. Mm. True happiness is just inner peace. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. And those wise words come from Drew Hanlon, MBA consultant, executive coach, and the CEO of Pure Sweat Sports, who has forged his dream into a reality, becoming the number one coach for hoopers and executives who want to take their game to the next level. On today's show, Coach shares the experiences that shaped his philosophy, how off-court matters can impact your on-court performance, and that true happiness is inner peace. So starting from Belmont University, he's number one in your program, number one in your heart. Please welcome the real Coach Drew Hanlon. Enjoy. And welcome, everyone to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the CEO and executive coach of Pierce Sweat Basketball, Mr. Drew Hanlon. Drew, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks for having me on. I, I'm going to enjoy it. All right, Coach. So first question is first. Did you get any shots up this morning? <laughs> Not yet. Actually, I've got a, a kind of a, a weird routine for me. Um, I'm in, in Philadelphia right now. I'm, I'm helping Joel Embiid get ready for the restart of the NBA season. And uh, we've been working out every single night at uh, 5 p.m. So I really have all day to kind of do whatever I want. Um, I'm actually writing a book right now that has nothing to do with basketball. Um, it's called Stop BSing Yourself. It's kind of the science behind um, how to actually take action. And, um, it's been great for me. You know, there's been nights because I don't have to wake up. There's some nights where I'll roll until four or 5 AM and, and, uh, sleep in a little bit later than I normally would. There's other days where I wake up super early and knock out a full day work before workouts. But, uh, I'm so used to being, you know, client after client during this period of time, but, um, because of the virus, uh, no one's traveling. And so everybody's uh, locked in. And so I'm really, in cities with one client at a time, which means that the majority of the day I really have to kind of work on some of the passion projects that I've usually had to push, you know, to the back burner. So it's actually been a, a kind of a exciting time for me just to finally work on some of the non-basketball related projects that I've wanted to work on for a while. So explain this to me really quick, because I want to touch on this uh, as well. Obviously, the league is on a standstill right now. And B being a, a big guy, he's always saying, trust the process. When the process gets upset like this, what's your schedule like? What, how'd you pivot? What are you doing now? Yeah, so I mean, a lot changed for me. Um, I was actually doing a camp in Hawaii and was actually flying to the East Coast to start working out some of my guys up here. Um, on March 11th when the season shut down. And I remember I landed in Phoenix. I had a layover in Phoenix. And when I landed, I had missed call after missed call. I had text messages like crazy. My clients were blowing me up and they're like, yo, like, what are you doing? And I was like, sorry, I was on a flight. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, uh, I wasn't able to answer the, you know, the FaceTimes. And I started calling them once I saw the news that the season had been canceled. And the question that they all asked me was, what do we do now? 
And for the first time ever in my career, at least, um, I didn't have the right answer because there were so many kind of uh, unknowns. We didn't know when the restart was going to be. We didn't know if there if there was going to be a remainder of this season or if we were just getting ready for next season. Um, we didn't know what the travel restrictions would be from just, you know, from the whole United States, not just the NBA, just like in general travel restrictions. And we didn't know how serious the virus was. And so um, for the first time ever, I really had to say, I don't know. Then they started asking me about load management. Remember, most NBA players, the second that they get knocked out of the season, we have a very strategic way of getting them ready for next season. We know how much time they're going to take off. We know when they're going to start to slowly ramp up cardio. We know when they're going to start to prepare their bodies. We know when they're going to get on the court and work on their skills. We know how to, you know, kind of go in waves so that they're getting the proper rest and recovery so that they can be at their best when they need to be at their best the following season. None of that was able to happen because we didn't know when they were going to come back. And so um, the answer was kind of deferred into the future. And we just said, hey, let's just keep uh, staying educated. Um, I'm going to talk to as many, you know, well-known, um, you know, kind of gurus in the medical field to kind of uh, feel out what they're saying. And then we'll make our best educated guess. And so a lot of them took off a month where they did nothing, just let their body rest and recover and kind of treated it. Uh, this time period as a mini off season, even though it became a bigger off season than they've ever had. And then after that, they started to get back on, you know, bikes and on treadmills and, and get kind of their cardio going. And then uh, about three to four weeks ago, a lot of them started to get back on the court and really attack their skill development so that they could feel good as a basketball player again. But again, it's just un so much uncertainty that you just had to really uh, go with the flow for the first time. And a lot of these guys, people don't realize this, but a lot of these guys have every second of every day planned out for the entire year. So it was the first time they ever could, you know, really just kind of kick back. And you see a lot of my guys started streaming on video games and it gave them a little glimpse of what life is like once you retire, you know, when you have unlimited money and unlimited flexibility where you kind of have to schedule your day to to make the most out of it. Yeah, Drew, especially for people that are so habitual uh, day in, day out, especially uh, those coaches having all the practice plans down to a T when something interrupts them. It's got to be a little challenging, but I'm sure uh, I mean, they're, they're elite athletes. They're going to figure it out regardless. Um, but Drew, I think maybe just for our audience really quick, they're like, you know, who is this guy that's talking right now to me? Uh, this is someone that you usually don't have on your show. Maybe explain to your audience uh, what you do and then who are some of the clients that you, you develop? Yeah. So um, the easiest way to put it is I'm, I'm a private skills coach um, and consultant for NBA players. And so what does that mean? That means during the season, I'm the guy breaking down film. I'm putting together scouting reports before and after games. Um, I'm putting together kind of uh, film clips so that they can make adjustments throughout the season. And um, I'm also the guy that, you know, is kind of like a surgeon where I'm on demand. If something's broke, I go in and fix it during the off season. I'm their trainer. I'm the one that's putting together strategic programs to uh, make sure that they get the best results possible um, so that they're an improved player the following season. That's the main gist of my of my business on the basketball world. And the last three years or so, um, I've started to use that same strategic process with a lot of executives um, that are in the business world. So whether it's, you know, high performing CEOs, whether it's, um, you know, companies that just need kind of a, a, a boost it's strategically or whether it's just kind of the motivation kind of factor. Um, I'm kind of a no nonsense, uh, you know, get down to business. Let's get, let's get stuff done kind of uh, guy. And so 
those are the two realms that I'm in. I'm in mainly, the, I'm known for the basketball side just because, you know, some of the clients I work with, Joel Embiid, uh, Bradley Beal, Jason Tatum, Zach Levine, Jordan Clarkson, Kelly Oubre. I mean, there's a ton of guys that I've worked with um, throughout my career. Um, and on the business side, I've, I've done it more kind of behind closed doors uh, besides the public speaking appearances, which obviously everyone knows about, but the um, the executive coaching for me has actually been very fun because I take a lot of these guys that do like sports and they've been very successful. Most of them are making, you know, from a million to, you know, way more than a million, from a million literally to a billion clients range and, um, and, and really help them kind of break down their business and their life in a strategic process. The funny thing is most of the executives that hire me, they hire me because they've hit a plateau and they want to take their game to the next level. If you use the word game, like I do. Um, and a lot of times we find out that something off of the, the court, their business, uh, you know, outside of their business is the thing that's really holding them back. You know, whether it's an executive that is dealing with, uh, you know, something in their marriage or whether it's an executive that, you know, has always prided themselves on making a certain salary and they finally achieve that salary. And now they're not experiencing the happiness that they thought they were going to experience or whether it's someone that, you know, feels like, hey, listen, I'm winning in all the elements that I should be winning judged by the outside. I have all the resources. I have all the kind of uh, financial uh, means to do whatever I want. But for some reason, I'm not fulfilled. And so normally we address the life issue first. And we really kind of reverse engineer what do they want their life to look like? What do they want their daily kind of, um, you know, uh, practices to be? And then we go back in, in and kind of make it happen by readjusting their daily disciplines and making sure that they're, uh, you know, following kind of their true pursuit of, of life instead of the pursuit of what most people do, which is pursue the things, you know, that don't really leave you satisfied at the end of the day. So now, where does this come from, uh, Drew? I mean, uh, I, I read up on you. I listened to a few interviews with you. You started this very, um, very early in your career. I think you said you've always been a sort of entrepreneur. Maybe unpack to our audience uh, where this comes from and, and your journey to how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I think it comes from two things. So the business entrepreneurial side just comes from kind of uh, lack of um, you know, when I was younger, my dad worked hard um, and my mom was a stay at home mom. They made sure that they provided everything they could for us, but we weren't very well off. And so when I wanted something, I had to work for it. So I was the, you know, the little kid that was running lemonade stands. Um, you know, when I was younger, I was shoveling snow. Um, I was, you know, doing the grass and stuff like that. But I also took a, a more strategic approach because I realized the more strategic you are, the more likely you are to achieve kind of success when it comes to kind of financial means. And so give me an example. When I was younger, we would go, I was, I was from St. Louis, Missouri. We would shovel, you know, driveways. Well, I realized that I could buy an old snowblower machine and it would cost me about what it would, it, what I charge for about five driveways. And so I was like, you know what, my first five driveways, I'm going to invest in a snowblower machine that was a little bit broken, but I knew my dad would want to help me out. He was one of those handymen and loved, you know, the father-son time. So we bought like kind of a used snowblower machine and that allowed me to go do faster driveways so then I could have a higher rate of return. When I was doing the grass cutting business, my dad always laughed at me because I would always have my neighborhood friends kind of work for me, if you will, when I was like, you know, 10, 12 years old. And I would say, hey, listen, I'm a good salesman. I'm going to go door to door and get us clients that want us to cut their grass. 
You're in charge of cutting. You're in, ch- in charge of shaping all the grass to make sure all the edges are nice. And and then we can get you know jobs done quicker. Lemonade stands. I was I was like, all right, let's not go on my corner. Let's go in the busiest busiest corners in town. And instead of charging a quarter per cup, let's get some bigger cups and charge a dollar because we know the the reason that most people stop is just because they want to donate to kids that are you know, doing, uh, you know, the lemonade stand. Very few times you have people that pull over oh, and say, lemonade. man, I'm glad you're here. I was I was looking for a quick trip, but now I've got my solution. And so I said, let's, instead of having people throw you a quarter, let's have people throw you a dollar. And so that's where my entrepreneurship journey started. When I was in high school, um, funny story was, I didn't actually ever want to be a basketball trainer. I had a car that my my parents had got me that got me from point A to point B, 190,000 miles, uh, didn't start if, if it was too cold out or if it was raining, um, you know, I had to get a jump start to get it going. And uh, I wanted a new car. And so I researched jobs that had the best kind of uh, rate of return, the highest kind of pay per hour. And I found out that refereeing um, gave you $18 an hour. So I was like 18 bucks an hour as, you know, a 16 year old, like that would be perfect. So I, um, I called this facility in town and I uh, didn't get a response. You know, I called them and left a message, didn't get a response, emailed, um, didn't get a response. And so finally I showed up to the facility and I said, Hey, listen, I've reached out to, he's actually my friend now, Matt Brobeck. And I said, I've reached out to Matt multiple times and he hasn't got back to me. And they said, well, you can go check his office, but I don't think he's here. And so I went down and knocked on the door. He didn't answer. And for whatever reason, his office was unlocked and me not knowing kind of business etiquette that you're not supposed to go into places you're not invited. I opened the door. I saw sticky notes. I took one of his own sticky notes, put it on his desk. I know you got my messages. Call me. And so later that day, I get a call from him and he said, man, you're persistent. Like, you want this job so good. I said, 18 bucks an hour. And he said, well, you know, hey, let's set up a time to meet. And I said, are you in your office now? I'll come up now. And he was like, all right, here we go, persistent through. So I showed up there, I met with Matt. He asked me, he said, Did, do you have any like credentials? Like, have you taken all the referee courses and classes? And I said, no, I mean, but I can tell you this, I'm better than the referees that blow calls yeah, during sure. my game. <laughs> and he started laughing. He's like, I, every basketball player thinks that the referees are terrible, but like, just know you have to actually be like qualified and you have to go through classes and courses. And I was like, all right, tell me what I have to do. Like, I'm willing to do it because 18 bucks an hour. And he said, you know what? If if really what you're after is 18 bucks an hour, he said, my son does not like me coaching him. Why don't you coach my son's team? And I was kind of like, that doesn't help me. And he was like, I'll give you 18 bucks an hour. So I was like, bang. So then I moved on from my refereeing career before I ever (laughs) was a referee. And I started coaching. But when I was at the facility, I was working hard on one court. And there were two games going on. It was a three-court facility. And um, one of the parents from court two came over to me, and they saw me dripping in sweat, hands on my knees, with no one else rebounding or there. I was by myself. And the parent kind of rattled me, put his hand on my back, and um, and he, he basically was like, hey, listen, I've never seen anybody work as hard as you. Can I pay you 20 bucks to put my son through that exact same workout? And so I was like, $2 pay raise. No longer am I a coach. Now I'm a trainer. Like, And really, that's how it started. And um, I started training. Um, Matt Baker was the first ever guy. George Baker was the parent that came over to me. And it was funny because a couple years later, Matt Brobeck, who was the, the the gentleman that was running the facility, he actually started working for me and was like my business manager. So it went, it went from him not, you know, from him ignoring me to kind of like, 
pushing me to the curb just because I was a young kid looking for a job to him working with me to build up Pure Sweat. And um, I started training kids. I had 96 kids in my first ever academy um, when I was 17 years old. Each one of those kids was paying me 200 bucks a month. You do the math, like you're making $20,000 as a, you know, a 16, 17 year old. You're starting to think, wow, like this is a real business. Like I can really do this. And so then I, uh, I wrote a book when I was a junior in high school that just had all my drills in it. And the big breakthrough was um, I started training Brad Beal. And Brad Beal was a freshman in high school that um, averaged eight points a game. And we started working out that summer. He grew a few inches. He was lifting weights with his brother. So it was like the perfect storm, you know, got him right at the right time. And his sophomore year, he jumped up to 24 points a game. And he won a state championship. So the fun thing is I won a state championship his freshman year. Then after that, I started working with him. He won a state championship his sophomore year. But people were like, what did you do to get so much better? And he gave me a lot of credit because I was the only new addition to kind of his team of his family that had uh, worked out with him forever. Um, but the truth is, you know, his his growth, you know, took my growth to another level. And and our careers kind of took off together and uh, word of mouth took over and, and the rest kind of history. Well, it's, it seems like people really noticed. People really noticed the work ethic. They noticed Brad Beal's improvement. Uh, they noticed that, you know, a, a junior in high school is, is authoring a book now on, on basketball and skills. Now, there must have came a point in time in your career when you said, you know, is this something I really want to do? Or was it more of, you know, this is something I can balance? I mean, you play college basketball. It's really hard to balance just school in general. I mean, did there ever reach a tipping point where you said, OK, I'm going to go full into this and, and start this academy? Yeah. So I'm going to take you back even. So like the way that I was, I was just really disciplined as a player. So when I was 12 years old, I gave up sweets, no candy, no sugar, no birthday cakes, no ice cream, no Snickers. I didn't have a sweet until I was done playing college basketball when I was 22 years old. Mm. So as a teenager, I never tasted any sweets. Think about that. Like birthday cakes were like literally my mom would cut up fruit and put, you know, the uh, birthday candles in the fruit. So my mind was a little bit different. I shot, I woke up at 4.59 a.m. for two reasons. One, because I wanted to get to school to shoot a thousand shots before school every day. But two, 4.59 was one minute before everybody that thought they were waking up early at 5 a.m. So I just had that kind of weird mindset where I always wanted to gain an edge on whether it was, you know, my opponents or just the people that I knew I was going to be competing with. And so that took me into the training world where once I started doing it, I was like, I'm all in. Like once I once I said, hey, listen, basketball training is something I fell in love with because it, it allowed me to do two things. One, it was basketball. I loved basketball. Two, I got to help people. So now I got to sandwich the best of both worlds. I got to not only help people, but I got to help people using the platform of basketball, which is my kind of favorite subject at the time. And so um, that was really when I when I decided to go all in. And and once I saw Brad's success. I felt like I owed it to him. I saw that he had a chance to, you know, make it to the to the NBA. And I felt like I owed it to him to do all the researching, all the studying, all the film edits, all the the analytical research, because I didn't want to let him down. And that was my biggest thing was I, I always feared letting him down um, and letting the other players that I was working out down. And, and, and I wasn't willing to do that. And so that's what kept me late at night. I remember when David Lee was my first ever NBA client, he actually went to Chaminade, which is the same school as Brad. That's how we got connected. And I was 
a freshman or sophomore in college when I started working out David Lee. So here I am, freshman in college, NBA All-Star calls me and says, hey, I'm going to give you a chance. And um, what I know now is David planned on giving me a one-day trial, and he never planned on working with me again. It was just I had been very persistent to our AAU coach. We played in the same AAU program. Um, for those of you guys that don't know what AAU program is, that just means your summer travel basketball program. And so we played on the same in the same club. And I was I was like, yo, let him let him you know just work out with me. Let him work out with me. Let him work out with me. I'm telling you, I can help his game. And so he gave me a one day trial. I was in Nashville at the time. I went to Belmont University and played at Belmont. And um, he was in St. Louis. And he said, when can we start working? And I was like, anytime you want. He goes, perfect. 8 a.m. tomorrow work? Well, obviously, for this chance and opportunity, I say yes. So I said yes. I pack up my car. I drive four and a half hours back to St. Louis. I get in at about midnight. And at midnight, I went through and I spent the next seven hours watching film of David Lee. Mm. Just watching everything that I could find on him. Interviews of him. I wanted to do what, know what he was like. I wanted to know about his family. Like, did he have you know brothers and sisters? Like, what were mom and dad do? I wanted to know everything so that I could relate to him on a personal level. And then I got to the gym at like 7 a.m. I, I mopped the floor because I want to make sure the floor was all nice for you know my first NBA client. And um, and then you know we worked out. And when we worked out, uh, never forget it. He. Uh, he showed up in his Ferrari and, and you're talking about a guy that, you know, it's never even seen a Ferrari he shows up in his Ferrari. And, um, but I held him accountable. He was late by like a couple minutes, like literally a couple minutes. And I was like, all right, we're on the line. He's like, come on, bro. NBA players don't run. Like when they're late, like we're good, you know, let's start up. And I was like, listen, like we're on the line. Like this is what I do. This is who I am. And so we, you know, we jogged. I mean, it was a, <laughs> I, when I say run, he, he took run as a uh, very sure. light up and back, but he did it. And uh, there was a breaking point moment during the workout where I was doing, I was showing him this thing called a pound pivot. And uh, when I was showing him the pound pivot, he was missing. And he finally lit me up and he was like, bro, I'm never going to do this. Move on. I'm never going to do this. Let's go. Like, I'm not, you know, these guards that you train, like I'm a big man, big man don't move like this. And I looked at him and again, he's 6'10", I'm 5'11". And I went up to him and I was like, listen, if you just get this foot a little bit more at this angle, you're going to be able to get your hips opened up. And when your hips open up, it's going to allow you to make the shot. Trust me. Mm. And I walked away and he did it. And fortunately for me, I don't know if it could be a more perfect storm, but he made eight in a row. And he was like, good shit. And I remember at that moment, I was like, thank God I didn't back down. And afterwards, he was like, yo, after that first workout, I knew I was going to be with you for the rest of my career. And he's like, going into the workout, I thought it was going to be a one-time thing, but it made me realize that the best are the best because they want to be held accountable. They they want, they want need somebody to kind of uh, make sure that they're staying disciplined. And they want somebody that, they, that can take them to where they can't take themselves. And so that's what, to me, that's what my strengths have always been is um, I'm able to break things down to what I call micro skills, the smallest of the small, you know, the skills within the skills, and then build them back up in a strategic manner so that you get, you know, better results by being more efficient and effective, whether it's in the business world or in the basketball world. And um, that's how I that's how I that's how I got my start. And that's how I kind of, uh, you know, decided to go all in. It was more so of just not letting people down. And I think there's something to say about that, about the things that you do 
uh, you know, off the court, the things that you have put in time after time from not eating candy uh, to staying disciplined to, um, you know, being focused on your side gigs during college, no matter what it would be, all those things add up. And then, you know, here I'm now I'm just hearing with David Lee, you know, waking up, you know, getting there at 8 a.m. You know, what do you have to say? about the things that people can do, like the mindset that you're trying to build off the court and how that translates to on-court performance. Oh my gosh, so much. I always tell people that if you see slumps on the basketball court, it's most likely because something's happening off the court. Same thing in the business world. If you see somebody with a lack of energy in kind of the office, it's because something's drained their energy outside of the office. And so Um, I I think that that's really what my job is as a coach, whether it's basketball or business, is my job is to um, kind of eliminate the things that suck away energy and help them pursue things that kind of add energy so that they can they can really be at their best, both off and on the court or on and off, you know, the office. And um, I think that's really what my job is. And I think that so many people pursue things that don't bring them energy. Mm. And, and here's the thing, this is something that I think a lot of people disagree with, but it's it's so true in all my clients, especially in the business world, that have kind of changed their mentality, have loved this. Here's what it is. You should pursue things that bring you energy. That's it. Some people say you should never pursue money. But guess what? When I was broke, pursuing money brought me energy. It woke me up early. It kept me up late at night. Then I got to a point where I, money didn't do it for me. And then it became helping other people achieve success. And my definition of success is inner peace. Mm. True happiness is just inner peace. When you can, you know, kind of all out, you, you trust yourself, yourself you, you know what kind of uh, value you bring to the world. You know what you want to accomplish in the world. That's what it is. It's, it's true peace. And I think that that's where a lot of people get it wrong is they continue to pursue the thing that they started to pursue, but it doesn't bring them energy anymore. And so you can pursue things that, um, you know, bring you energy. And, and even if they're just short term, you could say, you know, like right now I'm going to do a 30 challenge and I'm after getting a good body. If you pursue that and it's bringing you energy, great. But the second that it becomes kind of something that doesn't energize you, you should refocus your, your, your time to something that energizes you again, because that's what we really want to do. We want to live a fulfilled life, not just kind of uh, try to achieve things that other people are going to praise us for. And so, you know, going internal instead of focusing external is is so important. And and that's a lesson I learned from my grandma, to be honest with you. So my grandma, she worked with Mother Teresa. And so anybody that knows anything about Mother no Teresa, way. you know, one of like the, a living saint on earth. And uh, my grandma was the exact same way, brought a smile to every person that she interacted with. And the biggest lesson that she ever told me was, Drew, you're never going to have everything that you want but you're always going to have more than you need. And so that lesson of gratitude allowed me to really kind of live my life with a perspective uh, to, to everything and to realize how blessed and fortunate we all are if we're looking at the blessings instead of kind of looking at things that aren't going so well. And so being able to train your mind to kind of um, gravitate towards gratitude instead of, uh, you know, complaining and, um, you know, nitpicking all the things that could have went better will really bring kind of a, uh, a inner peace to you where you're not constantly in your mind going in circles, asking yourself, what should I have done? What could I do? What um, should I do next? 
Instead, you'll just be living in a, a kind of a, a peaceful present moment that allows you to kind of enjoy all the, the good things that are going on in your world that uh, you should be really thankful for. So wise words, Drew. Very wise. Now, I'm curious, like, when did you get, get to that understanding? Because that's something like you hear from, uh, you know, your, your grandfather or grandmother, you know, that's that's some that's some straight facts right there. And then the other thing I had was, um, you know, how, how much do you focus on mental health? I mean, mental health is a, is a big issue. I mean, Kevin Love is very proactive in that messaging in the NBA. Many athletes are. Um, I think it's also having worked in, you know, D1 athletics, uh, having a best friend whose father, um, you know, dealt with uh, depression for many of his years after he left the NBA. It's something that really doesn't get talked about. How often uh, do you talk about mental health and uh, how much does it affect, uh, like you said, a person's on-court performance? Yeah, so I mean, the, the reason I had it so much was honestly a couple of reasons. One, um, we adopted uh, my little sister, um, who's from Haiti, um, when I was maybe in high school. And um, she had hydrocephalus, which is overflooding of water in her head, which put a mm. lot of pressure on her brain. They didn't know how long her, her life expectancy was. Um, it was one of those things where I remember there were times where my mom was like, almost crying every morning when like Lulu would wake her up uh, just because she was happy that she was there the next day. So um, that allowed me to realize how selfish I was or how off my perspective was when I was worried about a bad game or, uh, you know, a flat tire or a car not starting up. It just, it made me really realize like, what am I doing? Like, why, why am I worried about these little things that aren't going to be worries in three months, six months, whereas you know, my sister has such strength to battle through something that, you know, we don't know if there's going to be another three months or six months. And so fortunately, uh, she beat the odds. She's now a teenager. She's 13. Um, but the surgery procedure she had to go through and my, my family has a ton of uh, my aunt runs uh, something that's called Healing the Children, where basically um, it partners or pairs together third world um, babies that have maybe some kind of birth defects with um, uh, American households that are able to kind of take them in while they're able to do um, surgeries. And then once um, their surgeries kind of correct, whatever kind of birth defect there is, they send them back to their, okay. their family. And so just being around that, being around my grandma, who uh, every day was, she went to church like multiple times a day and was just so at peace. I mean, waking up in the morning, singing zippity doodah, like while she's like skipping to church and um, just trusting herself so much. Like, I remember there were times like when I was in a car with her and she'd be, you know, maybe need to grab something out of the back seat and would turn around and start grabbing. And I'm like, grandma, grandma. And she's like, if it's our time, it's our time. And I'm like, I love that you believe in God so much, grandma, but let's help God, you know, drive that steering wheel real quick. So we don't have to like, see if it's our time. But, um, I just saw that she didn't care about the thing that everyone cared about and she was more at peace than anyone that i had ever been around and then to see all these uh third world uh you know babies coming in and still having a bright smile and then i was fortunate to go on some mission trips and you know i remember one of the first mission trips i went on was in south africa and we went to this place called red hill which was w literally the most uh you know kind of um poor community in in south africa and there was a big dumpster, like think of a big dumpster that you would see at, at a, like a, any kind of business that, you know, normally all the trash bins get emptied into that. And that's where they put all of their like when they had to go to the bathroom, they would all dump it into that. And once a week, there would be a trash truck that came and took all of their 
waste. Ooh. I'm talking about where they go to the bathroom. They would, yeah. you know, go in the bathroom and put it in there. And we played basketball with them. And basketball was different. They had a uh, like a tree and it was like a stick. And they had a tin foil or like a tin kind of like cutout thing that they put as the rim. And they had one hoop for like thousands and thousands of people. But they didn't care. And and they would be in a line and everybody would take their turn and they would shoot. And if they missed, they everyone, oh, if they made it, then the whole the whole area went crazy. I mean, it was dancing, it was music playing, and then and then it would go back in line. And you're thinking, most people in America, literally, if they have to wait for 10 minutes at Chick-fil-A, they are complaining. Like, what what is going on? Do these people work? Are they what are they doing in there? Where these people were willing to wait for hours just for a chance to shoot one shot and didn't care because they were just enjoying being around each other and, and they were enjoying that they were living. They enjoyed that, you know, they weren't, you know, dealing with a health issue. And and so I think all of that bottled in, you know, being around my grandma enough, you know, my mom and dad were very positive people that were always, you know, kind of uh, you know, make the best out of every situation, kind of seek, you know, the the good in your day instead of kind of complaining about the bad in your day. Um, and then just, you know, my, back to my grandma, my grandma, I literally had a bumper sticker on the back of her car that said, God bless the whole world. No exceptions. Now, Drew, and I'm, I'm trying to get your feedback up here really quick. I think you just, um, dialed out here, but, uh, hopefully you can hear this. Um, I want to talk about tactics. So we we talked about the big perspective approach. Now these things, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs that we've interviewed, you know, will go to a third world country, will recognize something, um, and then and then apply their business mindset, their passion, dedicate their careers to solving that inequity, uh, no matter what it is. Very similar to basketball. Um, now I want to get into what are the similarities between business and basketball to you. You've been doing this for a while. I've been trying to relate a few things to our audience, but uh, I want to hear it from someone with experience, someone that uh, is in the you know the trenches day in, day out. What are some of the similarities to basketball uh, and what are some uh, tactics that maybe employees listening to this can take away? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing is, the first thing is that, um, you know, I actually use the same practices with my business clients as I do my basketball clients. The first thing that you want to do is you want to have a clear objective. And so, you know, basketball players, that might be improve your jump shot business. It might be, uh, you know, get more sales calls or improve your ROI or whatever it is. Okay, so you you have to have a clear objective. And the important is, you notice I didn't say objectives. You have to have a clear objective. Hmm. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people struggle with is they have so many things that they want to do that they're scattered all around and really you have to be able to prioritize. So number one is have a clear objective, which means what I do is, the first thing I do with all my clients is to say, what are all the things that you want to improve and want to get better at, both business and basketball? The next thing I do is say, okay, what is the most important thing on this list? If you only could get better at one of these things, if you only can improve one of these things, which one is gonna give you your biggest bang for your buck? When they say it, I go, okay, that's number one on our list. Then number two, what is the second most important thing? Then I say, what's number three? And then after three, I draw a line and people freak out. They're going, whoa, 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 what about everything else? And I say, there's no possible way that we can focus on more than three things. And to be honest with you, we shouldn't work on number two until number one is accomplished because you said that once you thought it through, number one was the most important thing. And if nothing else happened, if number one happened, then we'd be good. 
So let's focus on that until we get that. And then once we get that, then we move on to number two, then we move on to three, then we can start re kind of focusing and reprioritizing our energy on other things. But I think number one is they have to make sure that they lock in on an objective. Number two, once they have that objective, I like to use the GPS analogy. Now you know where you want to go. Now you have to put together a strategic roadmap to get there. So that means not just like when you get in a car, I think this is where a lot of people fail too, especially in the business world. They think, I know where I want to go. And so I'm going to get there. Imagine if you, you know, got in your car and you didn't have your phone there and said, you know what? I I need to go from St. Louis to Philadelphia. Go. You'd have no idea. And then some people think, all right, I know it because I know Philadelphia is Northeast. Well, great. Northeast could get you to, to Pittsburgh. It could get you to New York. It could get you to DC. It could Boston. You don't know where you're going. You just know you're going Northeast. The only way to do it is by saying, all right, listen, when you pull out of the driveway, you go right. At the stop sign, you make a left. And it has to be that strategic where you know exactly how to get there so that you can get there. So number, number two is create a roadmap that allows you to not only know what direction you're going, but know exactly the steps. And I, I believe that most people fail at accomplishing things because they focus so much on direction, the Northeast, instead of the steps to get there. I'll give you an example. If I said like right now today, what is somebody's goal in the business world? A lot of people would say, get more sales. And I'd say, okay, great, get more sales. What do you need to do to get more sales? And they would take one step backwards. And the one step backwards would be, you know what? I need to uh, create a funnel or I need to do this or I need to do, I need more calls. But it go, go back another step, go back five steps. Because the first thing that you need to do is you need to research your target market. And so the first thing you need to do is, is do the market research. So you find out who you're trying to attract, who your target customers are, what are their, how can you speak to them? How can you, uh, you show empathy to whatever they're dealing with in their world so that you can relate to them? But now we're actually talking. But most people go one step back. So it'd be like if, if somebody was in the basketball world, I want to get better at shooting. And they think, all right, all I got to do is, is shoot a bunch of shots. Well, if you're shooting the wrong way, you're going to keep getting the wrong results. So what do you have to do? The first thing you have to do is film your shot. They think, what? Film my shot? How does that help me get a better shot? Because mm. if we don't know what's going on, then we can't tweak it. So the first thing you have to do is you have to take kind of an analysis of everything that's going on. And then what I do in the basketball world and the business world is kind of like a SWOT analysis, uh, uh, like analysis where what's going well, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, but then go further into that and really ask them to kind of look at what's causing those things. Because I think most people look at just the result of what's happening instead of what's causing those things to happen. So instead of saying what's going on, most people would say, well, weakness, let's say the basketball world, a weakness is I'm missing shots. What's causing it? And if you don't know what's causing it, you can't fix it. And so that's what I would say in the business world and basketball world. That's how it really works together is, uh, you know, the number two thing is building a strategic kind of roadmap to get you there. Number three is have some kind of accountability partner, which is why I think executive coaches and why I think skills coaches are so important, because that's when you get off track. Their job is to get you back on track. Like I joke around and I'm like, yo, I'm the guy. Just think about you know, when you're on your phone and Siri's going rerouting, rerouting, as annoying as it is, you need her to reroute you to get you back on course. That's what an executive coach, that's what a, a skills coach does. And then once you're there, 
you know, those are the three main steps, you know, analyze what's going on, look at the causes, not the what's happening. Make sure you put together that roadmap once you find it, everything out and then get you a executive coach or skills coach or somebody, an accountability partner that can help, you know, make sure that you're being real with yourself because uh, people don't realize it's hard to be real with yourself. I mean, take away basketball and business. Imagine how many friendships that should have been left a long time ago or relationships that should have been left a long time ago that you just hang around because you feel like you're pot committed, you know? And if you look at bad card players, bad poker players, what do they do? They make an initial bet and they're so attached to that bet that they say, ah, I know this is a bad idea, but I'm going to keep going. And what we have to do is we really have to remove all the roadblocks. And so that's another GPS analogy kind of reference of imagine you, you know the path but you say, okay, well, there's a roadblock and you just say, oh, dang, I can't get to Philadelphia because a street's closed. No, what do you do? You redirect, you pivot, you know? So being flexible in the pivoting is, is also important. So what are some of the things that say your top performing athletes or executives possess that separates them from the rest of the crowd? They all kind of have a couple things. One, they don't have an ego. They have a hunger and crave to get better. Two, they seek improvement. And three, they work their butt off. Because I think you have to do those. You have to, you have to be a willing learner. You have to crave improvement if you actually are going to get results. And then the last thing is you have to put in the work. And so um, when it comes to the business world, I think it's the exact same thing. Um, you know what? I always say that you want to master the role that you're in while working towards the role that you want. And if you don't master the role that you're in, you'll never get to that role that you want. Because you have to succeed in your role for being a chance to prove that you can provide value in that future role that you want. And so that's what I would, I would recommend um, to anybody that's in the business world is instead of complaining about your job, you know, if it won, if you hate it, you have a choice, leave it. And people think that I'm crazy when I say that, but I'm like, if you truly hate it, if it's sucking energy out of you, then you should leave your job and go find a job that, that energizes you. Two, let's say you're in a job that you like, and it's a stepping stone job to get the job that you want. You know, you have to go through those kind of tough times to get to the job you want. Then what you have to do is be so great at your current role that they are encouraged to give you a chance to prove that you're able to do the future role that you want. You know, and, and a lot of times, um, you know, I talk about this all the time, you know, say enterprise, uh, you know, enterprise is known for kind of um, being very hard at the beginning. You know, you're working 60 to 80 hours at times and and you're doing jobs that are not very um, fulfilling, if you will, at the beginning. But once you get past that first step, then it gets a little bit easier and a little bit more rewarding. And then once you get past the second step, it gets a lot more or easy and a lot more rewarding and you go on. But the only way to get to those steps two and three is by doing really well in your current role. So that's what I would, I would ask yourself is one, every job has things that they don't like. Like I travel nonstop. And, and while most people are like, oh, I'm jealous, I envy that, you wouldn't envy that when you spend 20 nights a year in your own bed. So there's things in my, you know, I don't want to stay up until 5 a.m. breaking down game film when somebody has an off night. I don't want to wake up, you know, at, at 3 a.m. to make sure that I have enough time to, you know, get all these projects done if I have a meeting at 8 a.m. But I do those things because I love what, you know, comes out of it. So you don't have to love the work. You just have to crave the result enough to do the work. Now, saying that, you also have to master your current role before you ever have a chance to get your future role. I see more people that want to be 
executive coaches, business coaches, and life coaches that one, have never built a business, two, that have never been in, a, in an executive position, or three, that have you know a bunch of shit going on in their life that they're not happy with. So it's like, how can you help somebody improve their business if you've never ran a business? How can you help somebody be a great executive if you've never had a position of power? And how can you be a great life coach if you can't even figure out you know, the things that are going on in your life? And so that's where, that's where the master in your current role, it makes so much sense is, um, you know, you, you got to be willing to buy into what you need to do now to eventually get you to where you need to, you know, want to get to. Uh, now, what about the clients you're looking to work with? Are there any specific traits you seek from somebody, whether it's discipline, whether it's openness, you know, uh, humility? What are some of the things that you look for in onboarding a client? Yeah, I mean, it's those three things, whether it's business or basketball, it's, you know, it's, it's one, do they crave improvement? Two, are they humble enough to take criticism and, and accept coaching? And three, are they willing to put in the work? Because it doesn't matter if you put together the perfect plan, if you don't go out and do the work, if the plan's not going to work. It doesn't matter if you put together the perfect plan, if you're not willing to be coached and willing to be guided, you're going to keep doing the same things you've always done and get the same results that you've always done. And it doesn't matter if you want the results really, uh, you know, a ton and you have the perfect plan. If you're not willing to put in the work, you're not going to you know, get the results. So those three things have to be there for me to accept a client. And um, I think that a lot of people, you know, they actually look down on me sometimes or, or kind of give me those kind of confused eyebrows because I'll have executive people that, you know, want to want coaching. I'll have executives that come in, they'll want coaching. We'll do an initial call. And after that, I'll say, you know, I, I don't know if we're a perfect fit. And then they'll try to just throw a bigger bag of money on the table. And that's not that's not what motivates me. That's not what energizes me. And, and what I tell them is, listen, while there is a number that, you know, I, I will willing to be stressed out and, you know, somebody offers me a million dollars. I'm not going to say, no, I'm not going to coach it for a million dollars. But it's it's not worth my time and it's wasting your time and money if we're both in this thing and it's a transaction. I don't want transactional clients. I want relational relationships with my clients where I want them to succeed. They want me to succeed. We're in this thing together. I'm trying to push and pull them and nudge them in the right direction, but they're trying to, you know, not need that push and pull and nudge. And if we do that, then I feel like it's a great um, thing. But I, I always say that like my clients are, are like family to me. Um, and you know, the best, the best thing that I ever that ever happened in a uh, relationship standpoint for me, just to look back and say, okay, I've done a, a, a I've done a, a a good job, is when I have clients retire, and we're still friends, we're still communicating. When they don't need me anymore, I'm not you know helping them anymore. I don't add value in in kind of that world, but we're still just it's beyond that. It's not a you know a transaction, and so. That's what I would say I look for is those three qualities. I think they're so important. I think the only way to grow and develop and improve is, you know, making sure that you're a willing learner that, you know, is accepting coaching. You don't have an ego. Uh, make sure you crave the results. You have to really, really want it because there's going to be days that you don't want to wake up that you have to push through. And in three, you got to be a willing worker. You got to put in the work. Otherwise, you're not going to get the results. Now, this begs the question, then, are there some things you can't teach? I, I think that there's things that you can't teach. I think that there's things that are just um, innate that, you know, are developed, whether it's during our childhood or or whatever. Um, you know, I'll use me, for example. I can't teach height. 
You know, I'm 5'11". <laughs> I, I wish I could grow six inches. I can't teach height, but just like height, I think there's things that you, um, it's, it's hard to, 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 to do certain things with certain people based on their experiences. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I think that you can, um, I think that situationally, you know, situa situations can change for people. Um, maybe they don't care about their health and it's hard to convince them about their health because they never had to worry about that. But then if somebody close to them passes away due to health related issues, then it might change and it might snap them into it, but it might be hard without that, um, you know, situation changing. But, uh, the truth is that's one of my biggest things that I have to do is I have to be able to not motivate people because motivation, I think is a spark of energy and motivation is, is similar to like, a uh, you know, a five hour energy drink where it, it does spike you up, but eventually you're going to come back down to kind of whatever your level of motivation truly is. And so I think mine is more about connecting to the, the outcome, um, by focusing on the process. So most people say, don't focus on the outcome, but I think you need to be able to see how it adds value so that you put in the work, but also you're not focused on the outcome so much that you're not kind of enjoying the process or buying into the process. So what that means is I'll give you a real world example. My dad, we went to the Super Bowl and um, Gatorade's one of my sponsors and, and Gatorade, you know, flew us out to the Super Bowl and they gave us these nice jackets, these like, you know, like leather jackets that are real nice. And um, the biggest size they had was 2XL. And my dad was, I mean, he was over 300 pounds at the time. And uh, he was probably 325, you know, literally 325. And he couldn't zip up his jacket. He felt embarrassed. And I said, hey, Pops, listen, there's two things we can do. One, you can just never fit that jacket. Or two, we can make it a goal to fit the jacket. And so he said, all right, let's do it. And so we didn't do anything crazy. He started walking for an hour a day, just moving more. And then we basically eliminated, you know, a couple things from, from his normal diet. It was breads and pastas. We tried to eliminate. Again, when I say try, it wasn't like a hundred percent thing. He was like, Drew, I'm not giving up beer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, he was going like half, you know, half the way in on the nutrition, but all the way in on working out. And, um, but he gave up, you know, bread and pasta. He tried to eliminate um, as much dairy as he could. And he tried to drink as much water as he could. Those were his three things and walk an hour a day. And uh, as he started going, it was, it was motivating for him to keep going because he started seeing results. A year to date from Super Bowl to Super Bowl, he lost almost 100 pounds. Wow, there you go. And everyone's like, oh my gosh. But here's what happens. When you start something, you get motivated. And when you get motivated, things get easier. And when things get easier, then you start wanting to do them more often. Mm. The second thing is, and this is important, the compelling reason was huge. He didn't want to let me down. He didn't want to let me down. If he was just doing it for himself, then he might not have. There were days where every single day we got him one of those ways that uh, track, you know, kind of how much you're working out and stuff. And he had to send me his results. And so around 9 p.m., if I didn't get a text message from him that said he had walked, I would just text him and say, yo, did you work out today or did you let me down? Mm. And he did not want to let his son down. And so what you have to do is you have to be able to connect it beyond. So there's some of my clients that have literally, my clients have signed over $1 billion of contracts. That's a fact, over $1 billion of contracts. Now, is money a motivator? To a lot of them, not so much. Do they care the difference about you know, a $50 million contract and a $40 million contract, they care, but not enough to like motivate them because they know they can take an off day and still get that $50 million contract. 
Here's where you connect it though. If you connect them to a passion of regret, if I say, hey, listen, in 15 years from now, you're no longer going to be able to play the game of basketball. Imagine the conversation that you're going to have to have your, with your son when he asks you why you never won a championship. Imagine the conversation that you're going to have to have with your son because that puts him in a state of, oh, I care about that. So what you have to do is you have to find something that's way beyond just the transaction of this for that. You know, oh, I'm going to walk so then I lose a pound. That's not good enough. I'm going to walk so I get to, you know, five extra healthy years of my life so that I can see my grand, my grandson, you know, play in high school. That connects, mm. you know. So um, that's what I what I try to do is I try to go beyond, um, you know, why the, the transaction of this for that and say, hey, listen, there's a bigger picture here. Because if you do this consistently for a long period of time, this is what you're really going to get at the end of the rainbow. Helping people see the bigger picture, peeling those layers back, what's really at the core. Now, that, this is a, a really nice leadership style. You have your Drew now. Uh, when we were in uh, college and, and our coaches would always tell the girls, you know, play your game. You know, play your game. Like you said, focus on that one thing. You got three things. Focus on your one thing. Improve on that one simple technique that you need to improve. Whether it's Giannis, I need to improve my jump shot. Whether it's Draymond. Uh, maybe less vocal or maybe more vocal on the court. I don't know. Um, you know, whoever it may be. Uh, now, leadership is something that is very difficult to teach. I've had some CEOs come on the show and say it's something that you cannot teach. You can read it however many books you want, but really it's just going to come down to understanding who you are. Now, to you, Drew Hanlon, what is your definition of a real leader? I think for me, it's pretty simple. A real leader is is someone that takes people where they need to go, regardless if they want to or not. Mm. I'll say that again. A real leader is someone that takes people where they need to go and get them to do the things they need to do so that they eventually get to where they want to get to, even if they don't want to do those things. And so I look at my high school coach being a great leader. And, um, you know, when I was a freshman in high school, I was a bucket getter. I was a great scorer. I hated defense. And he made me play all-time defense in practice. And um, there were a lot of times where, you know, I, I, I literally hated him. And I'm putting quotation marks up on the on the video screen, but I hated him. And uh, I tell my mom, I'm transferring to a school that'll let me just score 30 points a night because I felt like I could do that. The thing is, he saw the bigger picture. And he always would say, do you want to play college basketball? I said, yes. He said, do you realize you're 5'11", right? And at the time I was like 5'7". So he's like, you realize you're going to be under six foot. I said, yeah, he said, you're going to have to play defense. So while you might, you know, and, and my saying now is hate me now, thank me later. That's what I always tell my business clients and my, my basketball clients. Hate me now, thank me later. That's what a real leader does is they don't, they don't let you do the things that you want to do. They make you do the things that you need to do. And hopefully they encourage you and, and get you inspired to do the things that you need to do instead of having to force you so that you eventually get to where you want to go. And that's all that matters is results. I say it all the time and people like are like, how do you judge, you know, if you've done well with the clients? And I'm like, results. Now, results don't mean that you can, you can do a good job and not get results. Know that. There's been some guys that I've really helped out that haven't got results. And I look back and I, and I say, you know what? I did everything in my power to help them get results. But for whatever reason, it just didn't click. That's okay. I can live with that because I did my best job. There's also been guys that have got crazy results where I've been like, I didn't, I could have done a better job and I've like, I could have probably got them even better results. So I don't think that results tell you how well the process went. 
But what at the end of the day, all you're trying to do is real leaders is trying to help people nudge them in the right direction to do the right things so that eventually you take them to where they want to go. And if you can do that, I feel like you're a great leader. Drew, I, we appreciate you coming on the Real Leaders Podcast today, fitting us into the busy schedule uh, today. So we appreciate that. Where can our audience uh, find more about you and, and get in contact with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty simple. Uh, all my all my handles are at Drew Hanlon, which is D-R-E-W-H-A-N-L-E-N on all social media. Um, and um, and the other thing is if they're if they're basketball fans, um, you know, right now I've got a text community that I text with players and coaches that basically I just send them a daily text message um, that, you know, gives them skills and drills they can work on. Um, sometime later this this year, I'll, I'll have a, uh, a strictly business line that I'll be doing the same thing. Um, right now, I'm just I'm locked in the in the bunker and, and focusing on getting this book, um, you know, written so that I can get it out to the world and, and hopefully help people stop BSing themselves, stop, uh, you know, doing the things that they know they shouldn't be doing and start doing the things that they know they should be doing so they can get the results that they always want. All right, folks, we'll get in that tech circle. I know I will, as I'm always trying to improve my game. Um, Drew, for Drew Hanlon, I'm Kevin. I was asking you to go out there. Make sure you're taking people to where they don't want to go. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Drew. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, my man. And thank you, lucky listeners, for tuning in this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast with Drew Hanlon. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet left a review, please, by all means, scroll down to the bottom, rate and review the show. Let us know what you liked, what you don't like, and how we can improve. Okay, I just want to finish on this note. Drew's definition of a real leader was great. Pushing people where they don't want to go. And he did something to this podcast that I was not expecting as we are going to push ourselves where we don't want to go. We're going to dive into uncharted territories because I thought this podcast was all time. I think Drew's perspective gave me a new perspective and that's what we all need. So make sure to subscribe to this channel and we are going to get on leaders from all walks of life in medicine, that's science, uh, in education, and politics, uh, in arts, music, whatever you like, we're going to get on the show. So let us know who you think we should have on this show. We'll reach out to them, make the introduction, and make sure your time is worthwhile. That's it for me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. And always, keep it real.